Well, in that attitude of worship and praise, let's turn to the Word of God. I'm going to ask you to return with me to 1 Samuel chapter 14, and that's page uh, 283 for those who are using uh, the church Bibles. And it's this remarkable little story, cameo, in uh, the book of Samuel, uh, just showing how the purposes of God proceed and the people whom He uses in doing so. In uh, 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 11, we have a very searching and serious question. And the Apostle Peter puts to the people to whom he's writing these words, what kind of people ought we to be? Or what kind of people ought you to be? Now, the context there was in view of the second coming and the return of the Lord Jesus Christ. But that question is appropriate and applicable whatever the era or whatever the circumstances. What kind of people ought we to be? And then Peter goes on to tell us, you ought to be. And in the light of our passage here this morning, uh, 1 Samuel chapter 14, and the circumstances and the context in which we're living today, we ought to be people like Jonathan. We ought to be people like uh, uh, Jonathan. Now, in terms of Old Testament uh, characters, Jonathan wasn't a big ticket item. He wasn't the top of the bill. He almost seems to be like a supporting cast to those who were superior to him. In fact, Jonathan is really known in terms of his family and his friends. For example, at the beginning of the reading which we had this morning, we are told, Jonathan, the son of Saul. That was his identity, the son of Saul. He wasn't king, Saul was. And later on in the story of Samuel, he's known as David's nearest and dearest friend. In other words, his identity was in his relationship to other people. Now, that encourages me, and it excites me to a certain degree, because most of us as believers fall into that category. We haven't got a great personal identity. We aren't well known in many quarters. In fact, oftentimes when you speak to a person, say, oh, you're a member of such and such a church. That's your identity. Or perhaps, oh, so-and-so is your pastor. In other words, that's the class of people, the category in which we operate and we function. And that's encouraging. That's stimulating. It shows us that God takes these people, not the big tight, uh, item uh, people, not the big ticket item people, not, not those who are in the top of the bill, but He takes all sorts of people uh, to use in His glory and for His kingdom. And, uh, and especially when you think of the situation in which Jonathan found himself. The situation in which this drama and this event unfolds, I think, is also helpful in that regard. And what we can say, the Philistines, the enemies of Israel, were advancing, and quite rapidly advancing. They were now in the ascendancy. And if you go back to the third chapter, there's a little uh, place mentioned, or not such a little place, but a place is mentioned called Gilgal. Now, that's significant because this was quite near the entry point where Israel came into the promised land under the leadership of Joshua. This is where they first made entry into that promised land. And what has happened now that the Philistines, who resided in the Mediterranean coast along a narrow strip, which we would call Gaza today, had inexorably moved forward and forward and forward and pushed Israel back and back and back until almost they were back at the first point of entry. There they were, pushed back and back again. 
And it's in a situation like that that we find uh, Jonathan emerging. It's rather like in the Second World War at Dunkirk. And there the Allied forces under the power of the Nazi German army had been forced right back across France to that little port ready for evacuation. Or even like in the Korean War when the, the armies of Northern Korea pushed into the south at a remarkable rate, gradually pushing back United Nations forces just to one little area called Pusan. And there they were, pushed back and back and back. Can you imagine it? Well, that was the situation in which Jonathan found himself at this particular time. Now, it doesn't take a great deal of imagination to think in many ways that's the state of Christianity in Britain or in the West at this particular time. We have seen a gradual and a growing capitulation to secularism and the irreligious as far as our country is concerned. We have witnessed in our generation the collapse of a culture. A culture. Now, a culture is the shared values which are the glue and the thing that makes a society and community cohesive. And we've seen the collapse of that, the demise of it before our very eyes. I ask you, if you had spoke to our grandparents, and particularly my grandparents at my age, and told them what exists today, they could hardly believe that such a thing could be credible in Great Britain and United Kingdom. And yet, that's the reality with which we are, and the reality we're facing today. We see it, that which was abhorrent to another generation is now not only accepted, but even promoted in our society today. That's what would have been caused shock and horror to people of a former time. We now face as quite commonplace. We've seen the redefinition of marriage. Who could have thought that anyone would have even thought or even dared to dream that marriage would be defined as it's being defined in law today? Who could have thought that? And yet that's a reality. Biological realities are are rejected as meaningless. It's only what you feel or think, that's what you are. How ridiculous. And yet that's done in the name of wisdom. And it has to be accepted in many places uh, today. We've seen Sunday. And a former prime minister in our land said, Sunday was the greatest piece of social engineering that there ever was that families could be together, that people could be freed from other tasks in order to be together and also to worship together. And yet we have seen it just eroded and eroded and eroded until you can hardly believe that this day is in any way different or distinctive as it would have been in former days. And because of that, Christian people are being marginalized and even penalized and criminalized. Who would have thought, who would have dreamed that because people have refused to bake a cake promoting a certain lifestyle that they would find themselves taken to the Supreme Court of the country in order to get justice? Who would have imagined that? And that is Britain today. Who would have thought a student in a university would be thrown off his course just because he put in an email that he had misgivings Uh, misgivings about certain sexual orientation. He was thrown out of his university. Thank God he's been reinstated, but that's the reality. That's the situation we are dealing with 
in these days. And allied to that, and perhaps based upon it, is the rejection of ultimate and absolute objective truth. There is no ultimate truth. There's no final objective standard. And anyone who seeks to say so is rejected or repudiated in various ways, challenged, criticized, and, and censored. And what a, what a malaise has taken place because of that. Everyone does what's right in their own, own, own eyes. People don't even know why they exist. What's the purpose of their existence? What's the reason for it? They don't know if they've got any future. And this is having a profound impact on, on people. I remember hearing of a student and after a lecture, and he stood up and he said, who am I? Now, he wasn't asking about personal details of his name and address or anything like that. But he wasn't, what am I? What am I doing here? I feel just like a bit of flotsam and jetsam in the tide of humanity. We've lost that sense of God's truth. We're seeing this again and again. You may have heard the story of a very famous philosopher in Central Europe. And he had been drinking and he was in a beer garden and so he was in an inebriated state and he just lay down on the bench. In the morning, the owner came and he saw him unkempt and, dis- uh, and disheveled. And he said to him, what are you doing here? And the philosopher looked up and what he said, I only wish I knew. And he wasn't talking about the bench. He says, what am I? What's the purpose of my life? Here's a man with tremendous philosophical insights, the cream of philosophy. And then he's in ignorance. And he feels like a nobody, a non-entity, with no purpose. Didn't the Beatles sum it up? I'm just a nowhere man, making all my nowhere plans for nobody. Doesn't have a point of view. Doesn't know where he's going to. And you know, people actually danced and gyrated to that. I thought we should weep over it. Can you imagine it? A nobody, a non-entity. No plans, no purpose, no future, no prospects. That's the reality. People feel alone and afraid in a world they have not made. That's the situation that we're dealing with. The recent British survey, and this is probably one of the most genuine and authentic surveys, and for the first time since these surveys commenced, we can say that over 50% of our fellow citizens, our peers, our contemporaries, the people we work with and among whom we live, are now officially irreligious. No religion, no spiritual dimension, no thought about God or anything else. That's the reality. Because the Word of God has been set aside, this ultimate truth has, has been abandoned in many places at this particular time. Do you remember the days years ago? Well, for those who heard Dr. Billy Graham, one of the first things he'd say, the Bible says. And people took notice. They did take notice. They sat up. The preacher says today, the Bible says. You know what people say? So what? Shrug of the shoulders. It came home to me recently, speaking to a pastor from South Africa. And he said, the difference he has found from coming to the UK compared to South Africa. He said, when I preach there, I don't have to persuade people this is the Word of God. I don't have to give an apologetic for the Scriptures. The people believe it. He said, I came here and was talking about the Bible saying, 
And they said, they looked at me and said, I've got two heads. That, that's where we've come to. That's the situation uh, we are in. That's the ascendancy of, of the adversary in these situations. But what does what is, uh, Jonathan tell us here? And, and Jonathan, in the midst of all this, and he's aware of the situation. He knows what's going on. And then he's, Jonathan says to his armor bearer, come, let us go over. Let us go over. Let's do something about this. Let's go forward in this particular situation. And then the next, not only do we see the ascendancy of the adversary, but also the arrogance. Look at verse 12 of our text. Uh, and so both of them, that's Jonathan and his armor bearer, showed themselves to the Philistine outpost. Luke said the Philistines, the Hebrews are crawling out of their holes. They are hiding in. And then verse 12, they proceed, come up and we will teach you a lesson. What utter disdain. Here the people of God, the armies of Israel, and he said, look at them hiding in their holes. <laughs> look at their condition. Look at their state. Totally dismissive. And then said, we'll teach you a lesson. Who do you think you are? Are totally patronizing. And you know, that's the situation that we're faced with today. If we could take a stand for the truth, they look upon us as a relic from the past, an anachronism. We've got nothing valuable, nothing significant, nothing helpful to say in this generation. But in these times, we must remember that's always the way the adversary has spoke about the people of God and the work of God and the service of God. Always have done that. Remember Nehemiah. This is after the people had been taken into captivity in Babylon in 585, 586. And then 70 years later, they returned. Uh, and then another lot returns and they, they built the temple and now they're going to build the wall. And the enemies of the people of God, you notice how they spoke about them. Said, what will these feeble Jews do? How derisory. Looking upon the feeble Jews, they can, c couldn't possibly achieve anything. Nothing of worth, of nothing of substance or significance. And so they criticized the people themselves. And that's the way they speak about Christianity. This is in a relationship with God. It's, it's nothing. It's meaningless. It's vacuous. All of these things. And then they spoke about the materialist. And they said, well, do you think of these stones? That you want to build anything? Well, Nebuchadnezzar had done a thorough work on those walls. But here the people of God were using these stones and erect them again and building them. So they criticized the materials. It's the same today. They say, look at your meetings and your little, what are these prayer meetings you gather and pray for? What can that do? Look at your activities. They have little accounts. And they even said, even if a fox comes along and brushes against it, they'll knock it down. And that, that's the way we're, speak, we're, we're spoken of in these days. And, and Christianity in particular. And gospel uh, preaching especially. A message of that 2,000 years ago about someone dying on a cross. How could that possibly be a solution to the needs of the world? All of these things. Do you remember what they said about the Lord Jesus? What good thing can come out of Nazareth? Oh, what a good thing came out of Nazareth. The eyes of the world. What good thing. What a great thing came out of Nazareth. 
at that particular time. It's, it's like that in the early church as well. And, and here they talked about them as ignorant and unlearned men. We can just disregard them, write them off. That's the arrogance. But you know, it's not easy when people speak like that way about us or to us. It can sometimes make us feel so inferior and, and make us draw back and feel we should shut our mouths. We shouldn't say too much. We definitely shouldn't try to do, do very much in, the, in that situation. But even Jonathan at that time, he says, let us, let us go up. Referring back to the Korean War, and when the United Nations forces were pushed back to Pusan, this little perimeter that they had established. But there's a man called Douglas MacArthur. And what he said was, what we will do is, we will not attack them initially from the south where they pushed us. We will go round and bring an amphibious force, a seaborne force, right into, into the middle of, of, the, of the, t- the territory they have captured. Right in the very center of it. And it took them by, totally by surprise. That's the spirit of Jonathan. When all expected them to stay in their holes. And here Jonathan comes out. And he goes up to where the Philistines are. Well, more of that in a moment. But not only that, look at the location in verse 4. On each side of the pass that Jonathan intended to cross to reach the Philistines, outpost was a cliff. One was called Buzzes and the other was called Sinna. Now, those two names mean, Buzzes means Shele, and the other one means Thorny. What a situation. Jonathan, and not only that, it was uphill. It was uphill to get to them. What a location. It seemed that everything you could conceivably think of, every obstacle and hindrance that you could imagine were there. And yet Jonathan says, let us go up. Let us go up. That was Jonathan's approach. Sometimes we think, well, it's all right to talk about serving the Lord and living for the Lord and doing his will and singing about his will. But if you knew where I worked, if you appreciated the road where I live, if you only were conscious of the, sad, the family perhaps in which I'm located, it's so hard. Now, we don't minimize that one little bit. We, we're realistic. We know that. But when you think what Jonathan faced, can we honestly say that the difficulties that we encounter are in any ways in keeping or commensurate with what he did? And then look at the forces were against him. There were 20 up on this Philistine outpost. How many did Jonathan have? Himself and his armor bearer, that's two. Now, those who are uh, aware of military tactics, if you're going to capture an established outpost in a good position, you need two or three times as many as you, uh, of you as it is for them. So if Jonathan had worked on basically, basically military tactics, he should have had between 40 and 60. Instead, there are two. There too. You know, sometimes we can think, well, we're not many. And we have to be realistic in comparison to the size of the nation. We are comparatively few. But think in Matthew 28, in Acts chapter 1, 
in Christ our Savior, our King said, go into all the world and make disciples. And they were 12. All the world. And the amazing thing is, a third of the world in some form or other, even in our age, acknowledged Jesus Christ. Let's not be put off by a relative or comparative a small size, by the difficulty of the situation in which we're placed. Jonathan says, let us go up. Now, those who are older will know this. You know the song, Dare to be a Daniel. Oh, yes, I can see there are a few over 21. Dare to be a Daniel, dare to stand alone, dare to have a purpose true, dare to make it known. I've written another little song. Dare to be a, a dare to join a Jonathan, climb up the steep hill, dare to meet the adver- adversary, dare to do God's will. Oh, dear friends, if ever there was an era where we need Jonathans, it's in this area. If ever was a time when we need the spirit of Jonathan and the God of Jonathan, it's in this era. In spite of the situation he went up, in spite of the location, in spite of the condition of God's people, and this is the next thing that we want to take up, and this perhaps was the most discouraging facet or aspect of the whole uh, story. Look even at their size. If you go into chapter 13 at the beginning, Saul starts off with 3,000. That's quite good, isn't it? With 3,000. After one skirmish and battle, he was down to 600. That's one-fifth, 20%. 600 now. And what was that? If you look what the, the Philistines had, they had chariots and thousands and thousands. So here there was 300. That was the situation. In a battle, what one side tries to do is to degrade the other, gradually reduce them, reduce them, reduce them, until they are no longer a fighting force. And it would appear to be that Israel had been reduced almost. They couldn't be called an army or an effective fighting force. That's the state of the, of the people of God. And we have to recognize we are not living as 100 years ago or even just over 50 years ago. The traditional historic denominations, all of them have noticed a rapid decline. That's these great denominations. Now, there are pockets and there are individual places where they're growing and thriving, but by and large, the established historic churches are on the decline. Amongst evangelical churches, the vast majority are small churches. There are those that are a bit bigger, a bit larger, but they're not the majority. The majority are under 50 people. And they're trying to witness in, in, in that particular area where the Lord uh, has placed them. In size terms, it doesn't look good. And you can say every picture tells a story. If you look at Israel, what a sad, sorry tale they have. The people of God. And then look at the shape they're in, verse 6. And we have made reference to this, but it's, it's worth uh, mentioning again. It's these, uh, he's, he's met these people, uh, and uh, then going on down the chapter, he, he says he's going over to that. Then he goes on, and he talks about, the, about going up. And then the Philistines, look at these people hiding in their caves. They were keeping their heads down. 
they were trying to survive rather than succeed. They were trying to survive just rather than thrive. Now, in one sense, that is not an unworthy thing. But if we think in the same situation, well, if we can just keep our things ticking over, maintain the status quo, things can remain like that. They can't. Because the enemy isn't going to want to just maintain his status quo. He wants to remove all spirituality, all gospel witnesses, all churches. That's not maybe melodramatic. If you know the history of the church, you'd understand that. Marcus Aurelius in the third century, a stoic emperor, a brilliant man in many respects, and his one aim was to eradicate religion. That was his aim. Third century. Do you know what the aim of communism was? Communism's aim was to remove all religion. They saw them as this enormous impediment to what they wanted to achieve. And that's the reason why the Bibles were banned and the churches were closed and the pastors in prison and believers were put to, bed, put to death and they lost their jobs and they couldn't have a higher education. That was all part of the strategy. I want to tell you a little story. A place called Vrshats in Serbia. And um, cut, cut a long story short, uh, the, the believers there wanted a place to worship. And at first they offered him a place that wasn't any good. But one of the believers had been a partisan and had quite a bit of, if you like, kudos in that area. And he went, he said, we fought and we died. And then you treat us like this. You know what they did? The communists built them a church. You ever heard of communists building a church? Built them a church. And it was the best building in the time. Do you know why? They were convinced in a few years' time Christianity would be eradicated and they would take the building over for the communists. There it is. That which is opposed to Christianity, Christianity, the adversaries. We might just think we'll try and maintain this status quo. They will not be content. We need to think differently. And then there are those who are hiding. And then the next thing, there were those who were retreating. Uh, We're told what happened in chapter 13. Some of those even crossed over Jordan and went back outside the promised land. Can you imagine it? The people of God left the covenant ground that God had given them. It's hard to credit it, isn't it? God had given them this land and they left it. They were on the retreat, retreating, deserting the promised land, leaving the place of blessing. Now, we have to be realistic, dear friends. That has happened in our country. There are many villages without a gospel witness in our land, even without a religious witness. There's been a retreating. There are parts of cities that no longer have a gospel witness Well, at one time, they might have had a number of places located in that area. That's what's happening. If you ever go around Wales, and you'll find lots of buildings, 
And the date on, on them would be 1904, 1905, 1906. And now there are all sorts of things, anything but a church. And that could be replicated. There's been a retreat. But there's even been a retreat sometimes in Bible-believing churches. There are those who are cutting out services. They say, well, we haven't enough people to have two services on a Sunday. I've even known a place where I used to go and preach, and they had unbelievers coming on a Sunday evening, yet they closed the service because it's not convenient. What a retreat. What a retreat. Prayer meetings. And, and they're diminishing in size in many churches. And even churches that appear to be thriving. I was in a church down in the south of England, and Sunday morning there were over 400 people in the congregation. And I was having hospitality with a deacon. I said, isn't that wonderful? He said, come tonight and you'll find a quarter of that. He said, come to the prayer meeting and you'll find a few tens. What hope is there when we're retreating from the God-given means of blessing, of calling upon the name of the Lord? Gospel preaching is gradually diminishing. And some people say, we don't have many unconverted people to hear the gospel. I tell you, Christian people need to hear the gospel, never mind the unconverted. What we need to be reminded how dreadful is our condition to be lost under God's condemnation without Christ and without open the world. Because it reminds us of our family and our friends and our neighbors, their situation, and we need to hear that. We need to hear the, the wonders again of sins forgiven and the hope of heaven. We need to hear the blessing of having a wonderful Savior who's Christ our Lord to warm our hearts again, to praise, to preach. We need to be reminded the cost of our redemption when we think of going our own way. We realize we're not our own. We're bought with a price. There's been this retreat, dear friends, and we need to acknowledge it again and again. And then finally, there were even those who collaborated with the enemy. Verse 21, and we are told those who had gone over to the Israelites then came back. And this is what's happened very often, doctrinally, ethically, ecumenically. Very often the people of God, because they feel small themselves, they've, they've been willing to tone down the message. A friend of mine was preaching in a church and he preached on sin. And afterwards a man came up and said to him, he said, Oh, how quaint. We don't normally talk about sin here. We talk about messing up. Well, you can make a mess without being a sinner. People's predicament is because they're sinners, not because they've messed up just. I was in a theological institution, which shall be nameless, and uh, they were speaking to me, and I used the word saved. And there was a smile on the face of a person, one of the lecturers. And they said, oh, it sounds so anachronistic, that, doesn't it? But we talk about being converted here. I said, well, I believe conversion is part of salvation. But people need to be saved. Christ came to seek and to save that which is lost. The gospel of Jesus Christ is the power of God unto salvation. It's by grace you are saved through faith. Saved. That's where we are today, dear friends. But what can we do? What should be done? 
Let's move over to Jonathan's actions. Jonathan's actions. And you notice there's a thing that repeats, repeated all again and again, verse 1. Uh, and Jonathan says, Come, let us go over to the Philistines. Verse 6, Come, let us go over to the outpost of those uncircumcised men. Verse 8, Jonathan says, Come on then, we will cross over toward and let them see us. And then in verse 12, uh, this is great. Jonathan said to his armor bearer, Climb up after me. Isn't that great? That's what he was going to do in these circumstances, in that situation. And we need such an attitude in our day, especially in these difficult days, in these dark times, in these dark situations. And what churches should be saying is, here we are in these difficult times. We should be having more evangelistic missions. We should be having more. Come, let's do it. We should be planting more churches. Oh yes, maybe we think we haven't got this, that, no. We should be planting more churches. There are, there are many other areas where there's no witness. Come, let's do it. We should be distributing more literature. Come, let's do it. You know, that's the enterprise of Jonathan for such a situation as that. And look at his, look at his energy. He had to climb up the steep valley and, you know, Christian work, Christian work demands that we are to love the Lord our God with all our hearts, with all our minds, with all our souls, and with all our strength, our power. Whatever your hand finds to do, do it with all your might. What a difference it would make to embrace the Lord's service in such a spirit. Peter says, prepare your mind for action. How many of us prepare our mind for action? That's what Peter said. You need it. Gird up the loins of your mind. Prepare it for action. For it's for the, the Lord's work. Just two little illustrations in that. You won't know this man. His name is Ivan. Ivan was the president of the Evangelical Baptist Union right over the Soviet Union during the communist times. Can you imagine what it was like? And his life was like. When I met him, Ivan was over 80. And uh, he was saying, Bill, I think maybe it's time for me to, you know, just take a little step backwards. When you think of what he had gone through, and the service he had rendered, and the suffering he had encountered. You know, at the age of 40, 84, the Lord called him to plant a church. 84. And he did. And I could take you to that building today where there are many people gathering. Ivan is with the Lord. But oh, what, what energy. Uh, many of you remember Bill Boxall, don't you? Well, when Bill first came here and he'd been away from the Lord for quite some time, uh, and then he'd come back and we had prayer meetings at 7 o'clock on Saturday morning, and he would come rain, hail, snow, sometimes on his bike, and he wobbled more than, well, he had more sideward motion than forward motion. And I said to him, I called him Mr. B. I said, Mr. B, I said, you don't have to come out in weather like this. He said, he said, I have a lot of ground to make up. Jonathan knew there's a lot of ground to be made up. You know. I know. 
there's a lot of ground to be made up. Oh my God, help us to do it. And then Jonathan's example, verses 6 and 7. He says to the young army bear, come, let us go over. And then on down he says, climb up after me. What an example. You know, in these days, I see young people fired up about ecology. I've seen them, they want to save the planet. Now, I'm not speaking disparagingly about that. Christians should be concerned with that. Well, they say we have to save the planet for the next generation. But what about the people in the planet for eternity? Do we not want to see them saved? How we need to know something of that. Two men who had a great influence in my life. One was called Robert J. Savage. He was the most extraordinary, ordinary man I've ever met. There were 40 of us in the Bible class, which he taught. And he devoted himself. He wasn't the greatest teacher or preacher. But the life he lived and the commitment he had to see us come to the Lord. Out of that 40, six went into full-time Christian ministry. Many others became leaders in churches. One man. One man in the example he set. Dear friends, don't we need to set an example in these days? Don't we need that? The other was a man called Mr. Anderson. He owned a little home bakery. Uh, and they start baking at five o'clock in the morning. It was wonderful. You know, if you opened your window uh, near seven, the, the bread, the freshly baked bread, would just waft across. It was a wonderful way to get up. And, and they used to, people used to say, how, how are you so successful? He said, I pray for my bread. You don't. He belonged to a little church of just about 70 people. And he ran that bakery to make money to support missionaries. From that church of 70 people, 11 became full-time missionaries. Mr. Anderson had a heart to see people here and there and everywhere come to the Lord. And he lived for that. And he had such a profound effect on others, his example. The mission field has been greatly, greatly blessed through that. Maybe... It can't be this, it can't be the other. But we can pray, Lord, make me a Jonathan. Help me to be an example. Help me to inspire at least one other person to live for you and to serve you. I'll close. I think my time is gone, hasn't it? What was Jonathan's encouragement? Listen to what he said. Let us go over to the outpost, verse 6, of the uncircumcised. Perhaps the Lord will act on our behalf. Nothing can hinder the Lord from saving us. Nothing can hinder the Lord. He wasn't triumphalist. He wasn't arrogant. But he was confident that God could do something. And that's why he went up and up and on and on. And the victory was complete. And that's what we have to get a hold of these days. Remember the Lord. Nothing can hinder him. We are not going to say we know everything, we understand everything, we're not. But what we're saying, we understand what God can do. Nothing is too hard for the Lord. 
And in that spirit and in that attitude, we can go forward. You may have heard the story of a young man recently converted. And he, uh, he knew he re- should read the Bible, so he started to read the book of Revelation. And his friends were very perturbed because they thought, what's he going to come out with? So they told the pastor, this young man's name was John, and told the pastor, John's reading the book of Revelation. The pastor said, you just leave it with me, I'll talk with John. He said, John, I believe you're reading the Bible. He says, yes, pastor, I'm really enjoying it. Which part are you reading? He said, I thought I'd start at the end. I think he had an Irish connection or something. <laughs> he said, the book of Revelation. He said, John, what have you learned? He said, Pastor, I've learned we win. Wasn't he right? Only partially. Christ wins and we share in the victory. No, dear friends, a greater in Jonathan is calling us, our Lord Jesus Christ, the same. Come up. Come up with me. Come on with me. Whatever the situation, whatever the circumstances, whatever the condition, come with me. Come with me. And I will show you what God can do. Amen. Let's conclude by singing a hymn that gets us to focus on our God. Behold our God, the one who's the creator, the one who's the the sustainer of the entire cosmos.